0: We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Metis, and Inuit peoples whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello, and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Brooklyn Logician, and I'm here with Natalie Smattis.
1: Hi, how's it going, everyone?
0: In today's episode, we are joined by Porig Butner-Schneer, Raymond Breeb, and Alan Gilliland. Porig Butner-Schneer is a recording engineer, mastering engineer, music producer, and assistant professor of sound recording at McHugh University. He completed his formal training at McGill University, earning a bachelor's degree in jazz performance and a master's in sound recording. After completing his studies, he spent 10 years as a freelance recording engineer in Montreal, producing music for a diversity of artists in the city's best recording facilities. His recordings have earned many awards and received Juno nominations in 2020 and 2021. Raymond Bury is the Chair of Department of Music at McEwen University. Before Ray stepped into the role of Department Chair, he was Director of McEwen's Big Band and the Director of Community Engagement Scholarship in the Office of Research Services and the previous producer of our show, Research Recasted. Prior to his career at McEwen, he was a band teacher with Edmonton Public Schools, conductor of the University of Alberta Concert Band, Executive Director of the Alberta Band Association, and for 15 seasons worked as a conductor for the Cosmopolitan Music Society. Dr. Alan Gilland is the Dean Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications. He's written music for solo instruments, orchestras, choirs, brass quintets, wind ensembles, big bands, film, television, and theater. His music has been performed and broadcasted by ensembles around the world, and many of these performances have been in the world's major concert halls. Alan holds a diploma in Jazz Studies, Trumpet from Humber College, a Bachelor of Music degree in Performance and a Master of Music degree in Composition from the University of Alberta, a PhD in Composition from the University of Edinburgh. Alan has taught at the University of Alberta, the University of Edinburgh, Red Deer College, and MacEwan University. Thank you for being with us today.
2: Yeah,
1: um, thanks so much for having to be us. Here. Great, yeah. nicely um, done. Lots
0: of <laughs> lots of pressure today.
1: We have one of
2: Natalie's professors,
0: our dean, and our old producer, so
1: we're a little bit nervous. Oh uh,
2: well, we're really excited to be here. So thanks <laughs> yeah, for having us. This and is great. Let's have fun. And, yeah, don't worry.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, I've read some of your guys' bios, um, looked at websites, and one of the stories that I would like you guys to tell is how you guys know each other and how you've met.
3: Where do you want to start? Uh, Let me see. I can start. This is Alan, by the way, if you're trying to identify voices. Um, So I've known Ray Bree since 1986. So that makes it
4: 40... 44, 45 years. 45 years. Yeah, Yeah.
3: Ray. So uh, after Humber College, I came back to the University of Alberta to do my undergrad degree. And uh, the band, the big band that was really happening in town was actually the band that Ray was conducting at McEwen University. At that time, McEwen Community College. And I wanted to play in the band. I was a trumpet player. And so I came over and Ray was conducting the band. And that was 1986. And I wrote my first big band chart for that band. And uh, Ray and I have been collaborating now for 46 years
4: yeah that kind of sums up the this is Ray speaking now, but uh <laughs> it um sums up sort of that history but uh the collaboration has been ongoing um the bio that was there sort of reflects on some of the things but uh it, more importantly or not more importantly but certainly as important as the fact that uh, I've been the director of the um, Edmonton Winds, which is a community-based uh, wind ensemble in Edmonton and Alan and I've uh, did a CD together, which uh, received a WCMA award, and it featured all the music of his. And we've oh man, I can't even think how many pieces we've collaborated yeah, on dozens, twenty maybe, twenty. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also was the director of the River City Big Band, and Alan was the principal writer for that group, and and we've collaborated on a number of projects as well. So it's been yeah a forty to forty-five year friendship and collaboration through that period of time, and uh, McCune has been sort of the the focus mm-hmm. of that certainly throughout that entire period of time.
2: Um, so I actually this is uh, Butner Bundersnair speaking. Um, I've known Ray and Alan uh, by reputation because the Canadian music scene uh, you tend to hear a lot of uh, people's names said a lot, and so I I knew them by reputation for a long time. Um, I didn't meet them formally until I uh, joined the um, faculty at McEwan in 2019. I was hired as an assistant professor in the recording department. Um, but interestingly enough, I do, <laughs> Alan and I did have an experience uh, a few years ago. I can't, I, what, what year was that? 20. Wow. 2020?
3: 20... S- well, it was pre-COVID? Yeah. yeah it, it, so was like it was like 2016, 20... 17, maybe something like yeah, that. Yeah. I think it was even early, like Earlier 2012
2: that, yeah. or something like that. But anyway, I was doing an internship in Banff. Um as a recording engineer and Alan, I was on a session. And when you, when you do the Banff internship, you get put on these sessions and these visiting artists come and Alan came as a guest composer to work uh, with a, a brass ensemble that was featuring um, Wycliffe Gordon, who's a, um, an amazing uh, trombonist from New Orleans. And um, I met Alan among other people, some great musicians, Jens Lindman was on that um, a bunch of great performers, but um uh, but anyway, Alan was a guest composer, and we didn't have much interaction. No, we, we did I, I think at you all. came in for the day. You were
3: yeah, just for my pieces, um, just for my two pieces. Yeah. And
2: I was assisting on that session, so I was kind of quietly in the corner, and the person who was running in and out of the studio to adjust microphones and stuff. But I remember uh, really enjoying it, and it was a fantastic session. So we did meet way back then, and I still have yet to show you Alan the photograph of us, because there is a photograph of the ensemble. And it's weird to look back on it now. I have it. I'll show it to you oh, one day. I'd love to and see we're both that. in that photo. It's not the best <laughs> photo. But anyway, <laughs> so I did meet Alan years ago. But anyway, um, in 2019, I joined the faculty. And that's when I met them formally.
0: We kind of mentioned in your bios, and you kind of mentioned as well. But I'm curious what kind of your expertise are with music?
2: Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I, I guess you could call me, um, a uh, recording engineer. My specialty is definitely uh, recording acoustic music, but I do I perform various different roles within my my expertise. Uh, I do recording, I do mixing, I do uh, mastering, I do um, uh, producing, and they're all kind of separate roles. And you'll find a lot of engineers will. Sometimes spe- traditionally, people would specialize in one of those areas, but now it's getting more and more common for people to overlap. And I tend to do a little bit of all of them, and I really enjoy that because I, I think doing all of them makes you a little bit better at each one. So um, yeah, I've mastering, recording, mixing, producing. If you want me to talk about what that means, I can do that. but sure, uh, if you'd like to. Sure. So recording is pretty obvious your 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 um role is to go into the studio and kind of help the musicians achieve their best performance. Um, you're using your knowledge of setting up microphones to get the, capture the sounds in the way that the artists want or the producers want. Um, then later, after you've captured that audio, you're going to mix it. So you, you combine all the different signals that you've captured. You might apply effects like reverb or compression or things like that to enhance the sound. And you're going to generate a final mix, which is usually a stereo file if you're working in stereo. And then a mastering engineer will um, uh, come along and their job is to kind of finalize the audio so that's ready for commercial release. And that could be purely technical things like just making sure it's loud enough for whatever format it's being released on. Or it could also be enhancing the sound even further if they think they can make it even better. So there is kind of a technical and creative um, aspect to mastering. And then producers are there kind of to work with the musicians to ensure that uh, the best performance is captured. And producing is, is a... very open uh, field because it can be incredibly hands-on it could involve like arranging could be they could be collaborating on arrangement or writing music or they might just be there offering advice to the musician and helping them choose takes that are good or whatever so it can be a very diverse role but anyway uh, in the McEwen recording program our classes focus on all of those roles so we have classes that kind of address all of these things and that helps the students prepare for their careers.
3: Yeah, so this is Alan again. So my, yeah, I I would say my expertise right now would be composition uh, and then kind of the ancillary parts of composition, which are arranging and orchestration and other things like that. But I've had a bit of a dual career. I actually started wanting to be a jazz trumpet player when I got out of high school and went to Humber. Uh, I was really into jazz, especially kind of late 50s, Miles Davis, kind of Chet Baker jazz. And so I kind of aspired to that. And so my first diploma at Humber was in performance, and my undergrad is in performance. But then during my undergrad, I started taking some writing courses and really got interested in in composition. And so I ended up going back to the U of A and doing a master's in composition and doing my PhD in composition. And then for me, what was incredibly lucky is in um, 1999, I was appointed the composer-in-residence with the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra, which is a job I had for five years. And that kind of made my career because I wrote two pieces a year for them they got performed by the orchestra obviously but they also got broadcast nationally by cbc i met a ton of conductors i met a ton of soloists and ever since then i've had basically a career writing not only orchestral music but choir music, chamber music jazz all sorts of stuff yeah
4: this is raymond speaking um in terms of the artistic side of what i do there's uh, certainly, the one area is that of as a performer. I'm a woodwind player. Uh, my uh, undergraduate degree was in saxophone. Uh, my uh, graduate work was also in saxophone. My minor area was that in flute and clarinet. So I'm I'm really a woodwind player. Um, but then I did further graduate work in conducting. So the other side of my career, uh, from being a performer, is that of being a conductor. Of, of very traditional groups, uh, things like wind, wind ensembles, orchestras, uh, chamber groups like that. and But um, my life has been around uh, that of directing big band, uh, 37 years of that. Um, so those are the two artistic side of things. And, and actually, I, I would say that the biggest part of my career is just being that of a, a music teacher, uh, being able to somehow sort of translate the information or... or provide that information to students and of course the other leg of my career is that of being an administrator which is uh, a music administrator and we need we need all those all those people to make an industry vibrant uh, without without all of those aspects it's very difficult to have a have an active career and or a vibrant career in in the artistic industries I didn't talk about being an administered. Is that a sign of something? <laughs>
3: <laughs> I forgot to mention that, yeah, I was chair of the music program for five and a half years, and I've this, I'm in the eighth year of being the dean of finance. So I guess administration has been a big part of the last <laughs> 14 years of my life.
4: And we're very thankful for that. <laughs>
3: I'm
0: always very jealous when someone says that they were even like music recording or instruments because i played instruments for years and i was never particularly very good at it like a saxophone played saxophone for six years but i think it was always just honking
3: <laughs> well that's what it is right <laughs> oh, sounds about right. pretty much what the saxophone is yeah. It's
4: honking. ouch yeah <laughs> Yeah.
1: i, I just want to say too that um like in, in my third year in, in the music program uh, you know, the more classes I take, like arranging and mastering and, and all these different, uh, you know, worlds that I, I never even really thought about. I'm, I'm getting more into and like I'm, I'm now like, oh, I want to do all this and, you know, be be well-rounded. And um, like you said, like all those kind of connect. And it's kind of cool to see, you know, the more skills you have, um, you know, the more creative possibilities you have. And it's cool to see what you can create.
4: And there's an interesting point. I'll just sort of back up on that a little bit. And, you know, I always say that what what makes up the legs of our chair, of our career, and I think especially at the beginning, I think it's really important that we have lots of things, you know, whether it be performing or conducting or teaching or whatever that is, administration, but ultimately what happens is we we settle on the three maybe that, that provide that stability. And uh, I, it's really important to make sure that you – branch out and find out as much as possible at this point in time.
3: Yeah, and when we built a degree, we built it so that you yeah. would have to do all of those things because even if you want to be focused on recording, it's hard to be a great recording person if you don't know what an instrument sounds like. It's hard to, yeah. to know about writing if you, if you haven't done any writing. It's hard to be a composer if you haven't been a player, you know, all of those things. So we try to mix them up even though people come in wanting to do sometimes just one direction and kind of push against having to do the other stuff.
1: Oh, yeah, that's very very smart. (laughs) (laughs) It's good. I'm I'm slowly learning that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to take advantage of it.
2: I can actually say that like I don't think I would be a recording engineer if it hadn't been for classes I took because I think that is one of the best things about going to school is you are exposed to all these different areas and it kind of and I think there's a lot of people like that. They start out in one domain and then they kind of realize that they might be drawn towards something else. So it is it's I think that's one of the huge advantages of doing a, a university program like this.
3: Yeah. Well when I like I was saying when I left high school. Mm -hmm. The only thing I wanted to do was be a jazz trumpet player. Don't talk to me about (laughs) anything. And then I took one class in Humber about the music of Duke Ellington, which was just incredible because we just listened to his music. And then in my undergrad, I took a course in uh, electronic music, which was kind of a, precursor to recording. I took a course in orchestration, which is kind of writing for the orchestra. And by the time I was done, I was not interested. I was more interested in the big picture, the whole, like how does this whole orchestra go together than I was on just my role as a trumpet player. And if I had not taken those courses, I don't think I would be a composer.
0: Yeah, we'll probably come back to your roles. But I just want to ask you first, um, can you talk to us a little bit about your project, and Generations Big Band?
2: Sure. Uh, Maybe I'll start. I think one of the reasons why the the three of us are here today is because we all collaborated on that project together. And I think it's an interesting one to talk about because it does involve various different uh, areas within the music department um so you've got first of all it's a big band well I'll maybe i'll leave alan or ray to talk about what a big band is for the listeners but um i'll say just to get it started that it, it was kind of a interdisciplinary collaboration between composition area the performance area the recording and production area and actually even the design area through uh their uh the project's involvement with bent river records which we should probably talk about as yeah. well um but uh do, do you guys want to maybe start talking about yeah. what a big band is? Well, just I can to get talk about how yeah. it
3: started because I kind of generated right. the generations project. So as the dean, I oversee the budget for the entire fine arts and communications, and we have pots of money sometimes and we did have a pot of money that was provided by a Toronto Dominion Bank and basically we were given uh, $60,000 every year to put to the music program to help with performances and so year after year we had used it one year we took a band to uh, Whistler BC we took a big band there and I'll talk about that because it's actually connected to this project Uh, but when it got to COVID and we shut down, and we, ha- we weren't doing any performances. We still had this money, and they wanted us to spend it. And I thought, what are we going to do? How are mm-hmm. we going to spend this money? So my thought was, one year, I will commission 10 pieces of music and spend the money, and then in the next year, we will record all those pieces of music. And so that's exactly what we did. So I reached out to uh, five faculty and five uh, recent graduates of the program, commissioned fi- uh, 10 big band charts, and then the next year we put this big band Together, which we're calling the Generations Big Band, which I kind of love mm-hmm. because it's it's got players from all sorts of generations, uh, players that graduated back in the '80s when it was a diploma program, and uh, recent. I, we had some students in the band. Ray can talk about that as well. Too. It
2: it also ties in really nicely with McEwen just had their 50th anniversary, and the theme of their anniversary's uh, celebrations was past, present, and future. And I think the generations kind yeah. of encapsulates that yeah. concept because you've got alumni and you've got current faculty and students involved, so yeah, it's pretty...
3: exactly. So so we put this recording project together, and Ray can talk a little bit about the big band more. And then later on, I can talk about the second record, because we actually did two recording projects. We did this first one, and then this other opportunity arose, and we actually ended up doing two weeks of recording, and we're going to release two records. But Ray, maybe you can talk about the big band.
4: Yeah, I'm just going to add to it, is that this is a great example of, uh, of what a new emerging area of, of research. It's called research creation. And it's something that's come up, I'd say in, since the early 2020s, You know, somewhere around that period of time. And I'll, I'll read it rather than making a mis- mistake in the <laughs> definition. Uh, this comes from the Canadian government, by the way. Uh, An approach to research that combines creative and academic research practices and supports the development of knowledge and innovation through artistic expression, scholarly investigation and experimentation. And if I think about what this project is, it brings together everybody in, in creating a research area, a research environment. Um, and, and it certainly involved the big band. And, and that's an important part of this because that became the, the vehicle for all of this to happen or for the ultimate performance. And a big band is made up of um, essentially four sections of, of, of instrumental groups. Uh, the one being the saxophone uh, area. So there are five saxophones the trumpet section, uh, in this case, we had four trumpets, and the trombone section, which also had four uh, players in it as well. And then it also involves the rhythm section, which is made up of piano, guitar, bass, and drums. And we also had soloists as well, and and Alan will talk about that in there. But that essentially is the the unit, uh, and I'm the person who is desperately trying to steer things at the front of some very, very strong um, players. Like these are very, very strong, creative, energetic, um, somewhat opinionated people at times. And my role is actually to sort of pull all that together and sort of direct those creative juices in a way that's ultimately going to come up with a... A production or a project or, or a post project that is going to be really fine and I think we did.
2: Um, one of the things that I think might be fun to discuss is like maybe the process I don't know if the listeners would be interested in that but I should mention Paul Johnson he's the head of the recording department he was also uh, heavily involved in this but basically from the start of the, the project Alan approached us and said this is this sounds like a great project would you guys like to be involved and we definitely wanted to be involved And it's also great for us because we can involve our students in the recordings. And that's one thing we try to do a lot at McEwen is um, create opportunities through our research projects where students can come and like sit in on the sessions and help and participate. Because, um, you know... In, in many ways, recording is almost like a trade, like one of the best ways to learn it is just by doing it. And of course, the classes are great for teaching theory and all the giving all the knowledge to the students. But until they get in there and do it themselves, um, they won't be able to apply that knowledge. So these kind of research projects are ideal for students. Um, to just kind of practice uh what we're teaching. Um, so so um Paul and I, we uh, Alan asked if we wanted to be involved. And the first conversation we have to have is we have to talk to Ray and Alan about okay, how are we gonna do this? Like, first of all, very practical things. Like, where are people gonna sit? Do we wanna use the isolation booths? Do we not wanna use isolation booths? Um, Paul and I had to talk about like how are we gonna get enough headphones for the musicians? Because the, the studio doesn't naturally have enough headphones, so we had to kind of bring in extra equipment. Um, so we're, we're going back and forward with, uh, Alan and Ray saying like, if we put the saxes here, will they be able to see the trumpets and, and the trombones? And like, what if we put the drums in the booth? Can everyone see each other and hear each other? So there's all these practical conversations that have to happen well in advance to make sure that when we show up on the day of the recording, um, it's ready to go. Cause if it's not, it just turns into a nightmare and everyone gets really tired and the day is kind of gone before you know it. So you have to be
3: very prepared. So. Yeah. And, and it's a, like herding, herding cats to to get so the so you basically got what 20 players mm-hmm. about so you've got 20 players not all of them live in edmonton so one of the trumpet players is a faculty member at university of saskatchewan another one lives in calgary blah 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 and so you know you have to try to get everybody in one place uh, so I think we did three rehearsals and three recording sessions, and each each session is about two and a half hours long. And you're working with schedules, and it's just and then there's all the people in the studio and the equipment, and and then like Ray says, you know, very strong personalities, because in <clears throat> it's very interesting in a recording studio when some really great confident players get in front of a microphone. It can really play with. Their heads. And and you have to navigate that. You have Mm -hmm. to navigate, okay, this is going off the rails. What am I going to do? What am I going to keep everybody on track? I mean, you can talk a little bit more about that. Because you were doing, (laughs) I was just in the booth trying to, you know, be a good cheerleader.
4: (laughs) Yeah, it's an interesting process. Uh, and it kind of it comes back to the importance of being prepared and and looking at my responsibility in the process. So you know, obviously, Alan had the project proposal in place, but then it comes down to the process and and the research aspect of, for it for all of us. Uh, you know, Paul Rig being completely aware of what a big band needs to sound like. Mm. Alan making sure that the that the arrangements are done in such a way that it's going to be successful, or or there's the the possibility of success. And for me, it's the ability to have a real sort of in-depth knowledge of what each one of those scores is about. Um, so I, I basically had to take twenty somewhat scores and make sure that I had no question or doubts about what was needed in those in those scores, and and so that I could ultimately deal with the moment uh, of whatever that is. Uh, we needed a change. We needed to adjust something in the chart. Or, or we needed to go back and rehearse it. I, I need to be able to look at a score and know what it sounds like, to be able to see with my eyes and, and, hear, with my, uh, and, and hear with my eyes as well. So it's the involvement of your ears and the eyes in that process. And, and then I also have to recognize that going into rehearsal, I have a lot of stuff on my plate the least of which is dealing with the personalities there, but making sure that we're really, really efficient and so that I can go into the re- rehearsal and say, okay, great, we've done that. I know it's going to be okay when it comes down to the recording session. I need to focus on this. And there were sometimes in the rehearsals that I didn't even spend any time on a section because I said, well, okay, this is, I don't even need to think about that. I do need to think about that. So my research side of, this, of the whole process was, being really, really acutely aware of what's going on in every score. And that's hard because all of this music, and this is an important thing, this is all new creation. This is not music that was Ellington or Count Basie or Stan Canton or whomever. This is all brand new composed music of which there are no existing recordings. So we have to really kind of dig into what's on the page to make sure that we get that I get at what the composer really wants out of that so it's it's a really important study for every one of us to know our areas so that ultimately when we get to the studio, which is short in time, but we can be super efficient to make sure that we can piece all of this together
2: um It's fascinating when you uh when you get into the details, because Alan and Ray have, have shared a little bit about like the types of things that they're um, thinking about, the types of preparation necessary. But just to give you even more detail, because I, I kind of find it fascinating. So for example, Ray is in the main room with the band while we're recording. Alan's in the... The other side of the glass in the control room, making production decisions and also interacting with the composers in real time if they have questions. Um, we're all in there together, also deciding what takes sound good. We have students there helping, taking notes on whatever's being said in the room because it's all happening really fast so if Alan says that's a great take or Ray turns around in the recording space and says we really like that one somebody's taking notes on that so that the audio engineers can come back later and save themselves a lot of time if they have to do editing but even um, to get more specific so Uh, occasionally you have to do edits in in the different takes of the music. And we're not using click tracks the way a a modern pop production might use, right? So in pop music, sometimes you'll have a click track just going click, 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 you know, the tempo of the song. And that makes um, editing really convenient because it's always going to be the correct tempo. But with this, we're not doing that because that wouldn't be appropriate for the style of music. But we still want to ensure that uh, we start and stop at relatively well-matched tempos, otherwise editing becomes a nightmare. So Ray is checking the tempo in between every stop to be sure that when he starts again uh, it's it's an appropriate tempo. And even slight, slight fluctuations can really throw things off, so he, he had to be really on top of that. And then Alan's also listening for those kind of things, tuning, whether, whether the, the instruments are playing.
3: i am also like. got the scores in front of me, so I'm really paying attention to oops, somebody didn't play this, somebody didn't play that, you know, because I don't, I don't have the music memorized and Ray's got a lot on his mind so it's good to have an extra set of eyes on the score.
2: And Alan correct me if I'm wrong but some of the composers might not have ever heard their piece performed by a big band at that point right? No. This might be the first time they've heard it so oh, sometimes cool. there's slight slight adjustments that had to be made. And yeah you would, sure. You would Surprises help. sometimes
3: yeah. and even, even the faculty we, we asked not all of them have written a ton of big band charts so it was all all kind of mind-opening for them as well, too. And so, you know, like, oh, man, I didn't expect that, or this is slower than I thought it was going to be, or I want more of this, I want more of that. All of those conversations are going on in the room, and so when Ray stops a take, I'll get on the microphone and I'll say, Ray, you know, could, could we bring out this? Could we bring out that? You know, even if he's looking at the score and thinking something else is more important on the score, we have the composers there as well, too. A lot going on in the studio
2: and and just finally to kind of wrap up how kind of uh, <laughs> like so many wheels in the in the machine um it, like uh on top of that one thing if you're mu- non-musicians might not be aware of is that playing instruments is very physical right like you 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 can't do it all day it's spe- especially brass instruments it, there's a limited amount of time that those players can play without kind of wearing out for the day obviously and it's kind of like being an athlete you know if you overdo if you overdo it in one sitting, you're not going to give your best performance. So everyone's conscious of that too. We don't want to waste the musician's energy and their their physical capabilities for the day. Um, and then uh, Paul Johnson and myself, our role as, a, as the engineers is also just to ensure that everyone's comfortable and that the technical stuff isn't getting in the way. Because you don't want that to become a barrier. Um, they've got so much to worry about. That if technical stuff gets in the way, it's just going to make the whole thing um, not flow as well. So our job is to try and do whatever we can to keep everyone happy as well, and make sure there's no as few technical problems as mm-hmm. possible, so that we can focus on the music. So it's a lot, but it's a lot, but it's fun, isn't it? Great. I mean, what an yeah, there's awesome... no more fun place to be in a <laughs> yeah. studio
3: recording a big band. Honestly, yeah. I mean, maybe on the stage working with an orchestra <laughs> is just about as good, but. Uh, but, I mean, that's what makes Poirig and Paul, uh, they're so amazing at this because, you know, Ray as a, as a session player himself has played a million recording sessions and I've been part of recording sessions as a composer and a player. And if, if that side of it, if the technical side of it is getting in the way, boy, you start, everybody's attitude goes down. Mm-hmm. People start crashing. People get mad. It, it does affect the way, the way it plays. Like it, and so to just go into the studio... As we did on these sessions, just take a little bit of time to get headphone mixes is what we're really worried about. And suddenly, we're already recording. Man, that is that is skill.
1: Yeah, I can also speak to. Um, I had the honor of helping Poirig in one of his um, recordings uh, that he was doing, and it was a lot. Like, and, and you guys about the one with the yes, yeah. You were amazing,
2: record. by the way. You were such a fantastic uh, on that session. It was fantastic you, to have you. you there.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. But uh and yeah we did that over you said you you did 3 days for that for your research project.
3: For, yeah, so we did t- ended up doing two records, so we did 2 days for one record and then a week later did 2 days Which for the other. Which is actually record. unbelievable. Yeah. Like we were was it was a lot of it was music. down to business like we were we were getting a lot of music out
4: right? we had 20 pieces in in essentially yeah. 4 days in a yeah. recording yeah. studio with a big band, yeah. Yeah, it's that's a lot. Yeah. yeah. Live, live off <laughs> live off you. the floor. Right? Live, yeah. 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 Live off the floor, yeah.
1: Because I think we, we we recorded eight tracks. Or... It was
2: eight tracks, and we had a weekend. Yeah. we had like a, a sat, We did a, a setup on a Friday evening, and then we did the full the recording on Saturday and a Sunday, which is. Pretty typical for your average kind of jazz small combo. Yeah. That was a different type of instrumentation. It was a it was Aretha Aretha Tillotson's ensemble, nice. and it was a, a small combo. So there was a couple of saxophones, a rhythm section. Um, so it's a very different project, but but similar kind of all, all the considerations are still there. It's just different, slightly different because mm-hmm. it is a different type of ensemble. So.
1: But yeah, the fact that you guys did that, like pretty much in the same amount of time, is like is yeah, super.
2: It's it's, uh, it's very precise. I would call it like. <laughs> hectic but thoroughly (laughs) enjoyable i don't know i i love it it's it's like an adrenaline rush really like you you get home and you're i don't know about you guys but i i you i get home and i'm like wow that's exhausting but i'm also like can't you know all excited and you know you can't sleep and you're you're just like really looking forward to the next step yeah yeah
4: it's very energizing there's no question about that yeah it's hectic um but i think that you know when everything's working it's That's a right. very positive yeah. experience. Yeah, right? absolutely. And it's the
3: pinnacle of what we often yeah. train for, you mm-hmm. know, as a conductor, as a composer. I mean, the studio is so kind of hyper-focused. And so for those players, it's a, it's kind of a pinnacle for them is two to work together. And yeah, everything about it is really great. I really love it.
4: And and it's important to know that, you know, if you look at it from a research standpoint, is it... it I think often people look at what happens on the stage or on a concert and everybody kind of goes, Oh, okay, I guess that's it. Right. That's, that's, that's it. And, and if you take, if you take a look at the entire project and and if you look at the timeline, this is nothing that happened overnight, right? It's not like you just get into the studio and say, this is going to happen. This was a year in, in putting it all together. In terms of developing a proposal for this, which is what Alan did, and had this concept of of these recordings, coming up with the names, coming up with the composers, coming up with sort of the direction that we were going to go with this, so that took that took a year just to put all that together, and then find the money because. Musicians don't come cheaply, mm-hmm. you know, so there's, there's a lot of investment of, of dollars into that. Mm-hmm. Then the preparation, there, there's a, a year timeline just to get to the point of actually getting it to the studio so we can actually start to record it. And now we're into the second stage right. of that where we're doing the editing and making sure that we're ready to go to final production. So it's it's a very very long process to go through that proposal, the preparation, and then the the production, and ultimately what we call the dissemination. We're talking about it to a certain extent here, but also the 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 dissemination of that recording. So it's a it's nothing that happens overnight. And sometimes I think people kind of miss that point that there's uh, yeah there's a lot of that process.
0: <laughs> yeah, I. I can see how that's a that's a full process. How did you go about finding the composers for this project? Sure.
3: So, so that was kind of my, not my call, but I, I did collaborate with Emily Labelle, who teaches composition here, Kent Sangster, who teaches composition, Ray, ran a bunch of names by, because I did want it to be uh, kind of five... Uh, kind of faculty, senior composers, five emerging composers. I really wanted it to be that focus. And so the faculty that we got were Kent. Kent Sangster wrote a chart. Ruben Di Toledo, who's the head of bass here, wrote a chart. Craig Brennan, who's in the wind department, wrote a chart. And Tom Van Cedars wrote a chart. And his chart's called uh, The Long View. And that's going to be the name of the record, The Long View. And then there was one other kind of friend of the band, Silas Friesen, that we commissioned. And then the students were Joel Taves, Stephanie Urquit, John Halverson, Marie Alice Conrad, who's now a Sessional member with us, and Landon West. And so we chose the five of them as well as those other five. And and they went off, and they had a year to write the charts. They had a deadline, because we knew we were coming back to the session a year later. So they had basically till, I don't know, February or March of the year before we recorded in May. And so that ended up, and so I'll, I'll take this little side trip now to the second <laughs> record. So the whole project was supposed to be this one record. And we had the money, and, and it was all in place. Uh, and as we have described, it is a major undertaking to get Everybody in place at one time. And so I've had this relationship with this flute player by the name of Jim Walker. Um, Last time I said we took the big band to Whistler to play at a festival there. It's called the Cantando Festival. Well, in 2017, 2018, something like that, maybe. Pre COVID, that's all I remember. Pre COVID. Somewhere Something like that, 2016. Yeah, something like that. Cantando was uh, celebrating their 20th anniversary. And uh, Dennis Prime, who's the artistic director of that festival, uh, wanted to do a commissioned piece to celebrate their 20th anniversary. A lot of, like composers often get written to write anniversary pieces. It's like it's the 5th anniversary, it's the 10th anniversary, whatever. So this was the 20th anniversary of Cantando, and he very specifically wanted a piece written for Big Band, and he wanted it to feature his friend Jim Walker. I didn't, at that point, know who Jim was, but... Jim, since the early 80s through to about 2005, maybe 2010, was the first call flute player in the studios in Los Angeles. And so um, Memoirs of a Geisha, uh, Jurassic Park, Hmm. uh, Back to the Future, (laughs) Titanic. He's the flute player on all that stuff. He's like (laughs) the guy. But not only was he a great flute player in a kind of a classical world, but he also had... Uh, a fusion kind of, what we call fusions, kind of like uh, jazz and rock fused together. He had this fusion group called Free Flight, uh, which was him as a flute player plus a jazz rhythm section, and he had that in the 80s and 90s. So not only was he a virtuosic, flute player, but he was actually a flute player who could improvise in, in jazz. And so he wanted this piece written for Jim. And so I, I wrote this three-movement concerto for Jim called Pipe Dreams. So in 2020, uh, Jim was retiring from teaching at uh, University of Southern California after 35 years, and he wanted to play that piece as his kind of final piece at the concert. And so we were hanging out for dinner afterwards in LA, and, uh, and I said, man, there's got to be a way we can record this thing. We have to record this thing. Because he loves the piece, and I like the piece a lot. And it was a big success when we did it in Cantando. And I thought, wait a minute. We've got a big band already booked for a week. <laughs> could I just ask everybody to stick around for an extra week, and we could do this as record for Jim? Because he's at the end of his career now. He's in his 70s. and 80s, uh, 80s maybe. Yeah, yeah, 80s. And uh, he wanted to do kind of a legacy thing. He, so he wanted to do my piece, which is about 20, 25 minutes long, uh, as well of other pieces that have been written for him over his career. And so, yeah, so we basically reached out to the big band and said, does, does everybody want two weeks of work instead of one week of work? <laughs> Can we do this first record? And then Jim's going to come in, we'll rehearse all of his music, we'll do another record. And that's exactly what we did. So there's going to be two records. There's the Longview, which will be the composers I mentioned, and it'll be the Generations big band. And then there will be Pipe Dreams, we're calling the album, after my piece, which will be Jim Walker with The Generations, big band.
2: And it's a smart thing to do because we'd already done the setup for the first record, so it's kind of like why not take advantage of that and use it for, because rather than having to do the setup twice, we could leave it up. Uh, it was it was uh, classes that ended, so the studios were available and empty. So we were all able to kind of book that two-week period and leave the microphones all in place so that when everyone came back the following weekend to do the second album, we didn't have to go through the whole production of rechecking sound levels and setting everything up and all that because that is very very time consuming um so so it was great to kind of get two for one <laughs>
3: it was it was t- it was a two for one recording that would be very very hard to do so yeah. it was really great and so we're actually uh, we've almost done finished mixing the the uh, the first record the mm-hmm. long view and um and then Jim, because of the nature of recording these days, he can take his tracks back to LA with him and he's polishing up his tracks. And so we've given him a deadline where he has to get the stuff back to us so that we can actually do a CD release, record release in March at the Yardbird Suite. And so we'll play kind of half, the first set will probably be the Long View and the other set will bring up Jim and he'll play his stuff.
0: Very cool. Um, can we talk a little bit about who the musicians were that you had in your band?
3: Go for it, Ray. Do you have a list there? I don't, actually. (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, there's a Uh, a lot of musicians. Okay, let's see if we can all do this together. So I'm going to start (laughs) with, so um, I'll go through the trumpets as the way I remember them. So uh, we had, so there's a position always in a big band called Lead Trumpet, uh, L-E-A-D, Trumpet. And that's the person that plays all the flashy high notes. Uh, It's a very (laughs) hard job for a trumpet player. And we luckily in Edmonton, of a graduate of McEwen, who is a world-class trumpet player and a great lead player named Joel Gray. So he played lead trumpet. Uh, I mentioned uh, Dean McNeil, who's a faculty member at University of Saskatchewan, who came in for one of the records. Mar-Louis Saik, who's a, a recent graduate of the program, was in it. Uh, Alyssa Moores. Uh, Alyssa Moores, a recent graduate of the program, was in the band. Doug Berner. Doug Burner, who graduated back in the 90s, was in the band. So that was the trumpet section. You want to do one of the others?
4: Yeah, it's interesting. Now that I, I, I shut my eyes for a moment, I can see everybody, Right. Which yeah, is yeah, kind yeah. of interesting. In the studio. Yeah. Um, the saxophone section had a uh, faculty member, Kent Sangster, who's uh, in the composition department. Um, second alto saxophone was uh, was one that we changed. We used two different students. We had um, uh, Dana Anderson, who graduated a couple of years, or during the first year of COVID, and uh, then we also had Holly Sangster, who graduated uh, just the year after that. On tenor saxophone, we had a graduate of our program by the name of Jim Brennan, who is on the faculty down at Mount Royal University and is a fabulous tenor saxophonist. So he joined us as an alumni. Um, on tenor saxophone as well, in the second position on tenor saxophone, we had Jeremiah McDade, who is a graduate of our program as well who's now world-renowned, actually, for his work uh, as a soloist and also with the, with work with the McDades. Juno winning. Juno winning. Juno you know. yeah, recordings. Um absolutely. Uh, also uh, on tenor saxophone, we had Gerald Dubick, and Gerald is a uh, sessional faculty member here, teaches saxophone, and is also, a, he's won a WCMA award, um, so is um, well-respected in the community. And uh, on baritone saxophone, we had Dan Davis, who's a faculty member. And uh, for one of the projects, we also had Aidan Schaefer, who was a student in the program. And she was an actual student at that time, who was a fabulous player. Our trombone section was, uh, again, you always sort of, we had one person who was always core to that, who could count on and it's the lead. And Craig Brennan, uh, who's on faculty, is head of the winds and brass department.
3: And one of the composers as well. And
4: he was one of the composers and he played trombone. Uh, second trombone on that group, uh, for the group, was a, a graduate of our program, uh, Matt White. Uh, third trombone was a student in our program at that time. His name is Madeline Vandersloos. And also on bass trombone, one of our sessional faculty members and a great bass trombone. And a graduate of, of our of, program. Yeah, he is. That's right. Yeah, uh, Ken Reed. Um, you want to go on the rhythm section? Go for it.
3: Sure. So we had two drummers. Uh, we had the head of a drum program, uh, Dave Lang, who was there for the first record. And then we had uh, Jamie Cooper for the second record. Uh, Ruben, one of the composers and the head of the bass program, was the bass player for the whole session. Jim Head, head of the guitar program, was the guitar player for the whole program. And the head of our piano area, Chris Andrew, was the pianist. Whew. <laughs> we did it. Wow. We did it without <laughs> without notes. That's crazy.
1: I, I recognize a few names. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know.
3: Well, the, to tell you, one of the great things about McEwen is that uh, the faculty are also... Some of well the awesome. best yeah. session players in town, best players in town. I mean, every, almost anything you go to in Edmonton, you'll see one of our faculty members there because they are great players, and it's the same for the, re- the recording engineers, are the first call recording engineers, and the composers are some of the most sought after composers, and so I'm very proud of that.
4: And it was really interesting at the time because it's it is pretty. Um challenging for a student to be put in a position where yeah, you're having to sit beside your teacher mm. how does it feel right now, now yeah. right? <laughs> you, you got your, your teacher in here as well right
1: yeah it's uh well it's good <laughs> well
4: you're doing amazing so but, but it's it, it is really you know that's a very big task and to see how how much they matured in that period of time, like literally overnight, and how much they rose to that occasion to, to come into it. But I can't think of, like, if we talk about work-integrated learning, that's it, right? They're, they're in there right in the moment with the best players you can working at the top of their game, and these students are like, oh, my heavens, what do I do? And what they did is they were super prepared and as a result, just responded so well.
2: I, I'm sure, like, all three of us had that same experience yeah, when we were young. Like, yeah. that, for me, I I was a trumpet player. And, like, sitting beside, sitting in a section with more experienced older trumpet players was, like, incredible. You just, like, like Ray's saying, there's nothing really can replace that experience because you just have to be so on your toes and... Uh, you know, just you know, watch and fit in, and you just learn so much in that experience. It's one yeah. of the best ways that young musicians can learn.
3: And again, it's a great thing that we do at McEwen. I, th- I think in music, more as much as any other the programs in fine arts and communications, is we bring students in at every opportunity. I mean, we have this project we're doing currently with the Citadel Theater, where we're having student mentorship where students are playing in the pit orchestras for the entire run of the show and getting paid for it as well. I have a piece that the ESO is playing in October, and I'm going to take my orchestration class to a rehearsal, and they'll get to see how I interact with the conductor and with the orchestra, and they'll get a tour of the symphony and find out how that works. And All of that stuff is just so, so important.
1: I know I've been very grateful for all the opportunities that... My teachers and, uh, you know, just faculty at McEwen have given me, uh, with recording with PoiRig and Ray, um, adding me on to Research Recasted, and I'm, I'm really thankful for it all, and I hope to uh, make you guys proud. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Too late, you already have. Yeah, you already have. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if you think about it, like, you know, this is about the Generations Project, but... I mean, we're watching the two of you learn in real time. There's Sitting in a classroom talking to you two about, two about how to do this, mm-hmm. it only goes so far. Mm-hmm. And until you're in the hot seat, until you're doing what you're doing, until the issues arise that arise, there's no way to explain that. It's like t- trying to tell people what it's like to have kids, you know? Like until you have a kid, you'll never know what it's like to have kids, no matter how many people tell you what it's like to have kids. Until you have that kid for the first time, you're like, oh my God, I had no idea what it was like to have kids. So that's why we do it because there's, th- you can't replace this with anything else, even YouTube videos and any of that doesn't, yep.
4: doesn't even come close. There's an interesting book. that goes back decades now. It's called The Inner Game of Tennis. And then it was rewritten for The Inner Game of Music. And it's really about the the head game, and and really it kind of comes down to can you keep your head together uh, in in the heat of the moment, mm-hmm. and all of us talk about that with our students. Right, I, I've said it many times. I said, trust me, when it comes to being on the gig, and on the stand, and in the heat in the heat of that moment, it's not about your preparation because everybody's prepared. It's like, okay, how is your brain going to respond? And that to me was really interesting to watch and. It's interesting because I found the students who were relatively new at it were actually pretty good mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. keeping their heads together. It was some of the old ones in the band <laughs> that went kind of went, oh my God, what's going on here And it's it I think it was a really interesting thing to watch um, how how the students responded and and it actually goes it it, it speaks a lot to the importance of preparation and uh, and how well prepared everybody was for this. If they hadn't been, There's no way this would have ever happened. There's no way. You know, so that for every, I always say like for me, uh, for every one hour of rehearsal time or performance time I have, it it involves 12 hours of prep time on a score. And if you equate that to your parts, there's there's an equivalency there. It may not necessarily be the same thing. But that becomes part of that preparation for that period, for that moment. And if you do that, it runs pretty smoothly.
2: Um, putting students in the hot seat, as we were saying, I think, that, mm-hmm. like you said, there's absolutely no replacement for that. And just to kind of speak to the recording area, one of the things we do on these type of sessions is we'll get the students to sit in the seat in front of the computer running Pro Tools, which is the software that's used to record the music. And that position is kind of an unsung hero because no one really thinks about it but that is one of the most high pressure situations you can be placed in um, because if you mess up the entire thing stops um, so you're you're starting the recorder you're stopping the recorder you have to be on your toes if someone said okay let's take it back at measure Thirty or whatever, you have to kind of know where that is, um, and everyone expects you to be lightning fast. They don't understand the intricacies of what what you're doing, <laughs> yeah. what and and what you're looking at on the screen, and that you may have never even heard the music before. Um, and then also, like, you might even be unfamiliar with the mouse you're using because it's not the mouse you're used to, and like little silly things like that can really like slow you down. So, and it's kind of funny because Paul Johnson and myself, you know, we 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 want the students to have these opportunities, and also like, there's nothing worse than having you know, your, your instructor looking over your shoulder and being like, you know, watching you do this kinds of things. So it's an incredible amount of pressure, but such a good learning experience. And you can't, you can't replace that really. It's until you do that. I remember as a student myself, being in that seat and being afraid out of my mind and just like watching my instructor watch me and, and, and being like, don't mess it up. Don't press stop at the wrong
3: time. You know, all these kind of things. So yeah. For me, that's the, the equivalent is as a composer is the first time you hear your piece yeah. <laughs> yeah. rehearsed. You usually curl up in a fetal position yeah. and, and you know, hide underneath a table. And then, yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, for sure. That's, the, that's one of the greatest things about McEwen is you get the opportunity to work with your profs very closely, mm-hmm. um, especially in the arts programs. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of students, uh, can you talk to us a little bit about Bent River Records?
2: Yeah. Do you want to introduce it, Alan, or do
3: you want? Would you sure. like me to? Sure. So or? I can I can start it. But sure. I mean, it's very much uh, Poirig and Paul and an, another my associate dean Rose Ginther that are really the the heroes of Bent River Records. But um, so, th- uh, like I said, this is my eighth year as a dean. Uh, I think this started when I was a dean, maybe just before when I was a dean and I was a chair. But anyway, we hired Paul first, Paul Johnston. And uh, I remember he had us over for dinner in his condo. (laughs) Uh, And it was me, and it was Rose Ginther, and it was somebody from the design department. Uh, At that time, Rose was still in arts and cultural management. She wasn't an associate dean. Was it uh, Costanza? Oh, Costanza was there. That's right. And a couple other people had a lovely dinner. And at one point, Paul said, "I want to start a recording label and i as as Dean, I looked at him, I said, "You're insane because universities are policy <laughs> nightmares, and I just thought about oh, how, where are we even going to start? Like, I don't even know where to start with this. And he says, no, no, I, he said, you know, like record labels are all folding and the real place they're going to exist is if we, if we build them in a university context and we make them these collaborative synergistic uh, relationships between different programs and the design students will do the covers and arts and cultural management will do the promotion and recording students will record and blah, blah, blah. And he went on and on and on. I thought, man, this is the best idea ever. If you can pull this off. <laughs> and three or four years later, they had it pulled off. But I, I can't tell you how much red tape they had to go through with policies and legal and all of the things they had to do to get it up and running. And now it's up and running, and it's an, an incredible thing. It's an incredible thing it just as a label, producing professional quality recordings of a variety of artists from across the country, but also as this incubator for, for research. So you want to take it from there?
2: Yeah. So, so as you're saying, Alan, uh, Paul Johnson, Rose Ginther, um, are, are, were very, um, you know, instrumental in founding the label and they're, they're to this day still, you know, running it and doing a fantastic job. When I was hired in 2019, I was asked if I wanted to join. And of course I did, cause it's a really fun opportunity. Um, it's. I love that it's so interdisciplinary because it really does involve all these different departments and uh, we should mention Constanza Patcher again because she she's a design in the design department and one of the things that we enjoy most with the record label is uh, records need uh, album covers right so they, they need artwork for the album covers and the design department has amazing students who do these incredible album covers and so I'm not sure when this started because I wasn't around. I think they started this before I joined. But they collaborated with Constanza to kind of every year start these design competitions for certain albums that the record was doing.
3: Yeah, which is really cool because it's a project within a class, right? So you've got a class of 15 students, and they'll say, the album's called Pipe Dreams. And I'll come in as the composer of that album and say, OK, here's Jim Walker. And I'll tell them about the history and the music and all of this kind of stuff. And then I come back three or four weeks later, and there are 15 album covers I can choose from. 15. And there's usually five or six of them. They're really incredible. And so then you pick somebody, and we give a small prize to the person that that actually gets picked. But all of those, they all get to uh, experience what it's like not only to design the cover, but the Back cover, the inside cover, the art that's on the CD, how uh, to lay out the, the liner yeah. notes, uh, putting timings on tracks, you know, all the little details. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an amazing project for them, but it's so fun to go in and, and like, okay, what did they come up yeah. with? Yeah. You because know? I've done two records now on, on uh, Bent River. I did a, another one that was an orchestral record called Dreaming of the Masters. And it was just so much fun to go in and, and just, yeah, just see what people came up with for Dreaming of the Masters.
2: Yeah, I've, I've had the opportunity to to attend some of the, yeah, the right. classes where the students pitch their work to the, the artists involved. And I found it so impressive because I'm not in the design area. I don't really know much about what they do. So for me to go in as a guest... And sit there and see um, basically what happens as the artists are there and the producers and whoever's involved in the decision about the cover. And the, each student gets to pitch their idea the way they would, I imagine, in the commercial world. If yep, you're a designer, absolutely. this is what you do, right? So they'll come up with the design concept on a slide and they have to ha- speak for about five or ten minutes about what the concept is and kind of sell it to the – it is a competition, right? Sell it to the – the people who are making the decisions about the covers, and it's so I was I was blown away by how incredibly professional all the students were. I was just like, this is yeah. this is awesome. So I wanted to choose again, them work all <laughs> integrated learning, right? Well, here, we are yeah. work integrated learning. It's yeah. it's a
3: hundred percent them learning exactly what it's right to pitch and Constanza pitch does an awesome
2: job with that, like yeah. such leading that. So so that's that's been something that's been really um, kind of. Uh, an awesome kind of thing that Bent River is doing uh, to, to involve the design department. And then, of course, there's the music. So in recording, we we selfishly use the the, the projects for Bent River to provide opportunities for students. So like any time we do a recording for Bent River, we invite recording students to come and help out and sit in and, and get that experience. Um, but yeah, it's just been great. And the, it it also there's internships, uh, with the recording label for people in arts management and really any student who wants to get involved. And there's so many, so many things they can learn from it. And, you know, the types of things they do is like social media promotion for artists and then technical things like helping prepare technical details for the releases, like acquiring, uh, you know, um, licenses if they have to do that so that we can actually publish the music. And so there's lots involved. It's just a, a really great, Rose calls it a learning lab. And I think that's the de- the best way to yeah. kind of describe it is it is a, a learning lab where everyone, including faculty, can kind of learn about, uh, uh, you know, all the intricacies of all these different things that we're doing for the record label.
3: Yeah. And I was talking about Dreaming of the Masters, the record that I did. Uh, so that was an, a record with... Uh... Where we went to Prague and recorded with a sixty-five piece orchestra in Prague, Ray conducted, uh, and Paul came as the as the producer. And we took two Bent River interns with us to Prague wow, so that so they could cool. be a part of it. You know, so they got to see this amazing process and this amazing travel opportunity. I mean, that's you know, a that once stuff. in a lifetime. That's a once in a yeah, lifetime. That's yeah. like to
2: be able to go to to do a full orchestra in a in a beautiful recording facility like that. Yeah, it was, awesome. it
3: was yeah. quite quite a trip.
4: And I think our faculty actually have been really strong on collaboration for a long time um if i think back to the first recording i did with the big band which was back in 2004 it was called among friends 2005 pardon me um and and it was the same thing i went to wayne williams at that time right and and i we said we need artwork for the cd and we need layout and so he went to his students at that time and 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 went through that process and every one of our cds if I think of songs from the heart, yep. you know, that was a, also yep. a collaboration with others. So I think that we've, you know, I think that one of the most important things we do is, is work on collaborations. You know, one of my sort of dream thought ideas, and I've been talking with Craig about this is Craig Brennan, that is, um, is that, you know, we've got all this, all this work now, like all these uh, scores and re- and charts that we have been developed, these new pieces but now we need to somehow disseminate that through publication. So is there... If we have Bent River Records, is now there the, the opportunity for straight stream publishing? You know, I, you know, it's for so that we can take oh come on, I'm working work with me on this one. Straight it's, stream. A well, bent river straight stream. <laughs> Sounds like I'm doing urine analysis or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I take that all back. Anyways, but you know, an opportunity now to say, okay, how do we now involve uh communications potentially? How do we involve the business side from the school of business in, in terms of coming up with a business model for mm-hmm. for the publication mm-hmm. so that we can start to take uh works that are pub are, that are produced by our our faculty and from our alumni and students so there's a housing area for publication yeah. you know and this is there's models out there university of uh, northern colorado unc jazz press do that and and there's other ones like that and Maybe there's an opportunity because the part of the problem is, is that sure, we'll de- disseminate a recording, but now what we need to do is make sure that we have an opportunity to somehow get these great works out to the community mm-hmm. who need to now um, be involved in, in, in further per, um, uh, performances of this.
2: Um, I think it's since we're on the topic of dissemination, I think it's important also to mention like how important projects like this are for the culture in Alberta and Canada, because Mm -hmm. these are archival records of people right now who are important in the music industry making music. And if you don't do these types of projects, you don't have a record of that. Um, Some of these composers, this this may be um, the the like the the best recording they have of this particular piece that they've composed, and and so for this this is not only like important to kind of preserve all our all excuse me our culture and say you know like this is what exists now at this moment and this is what's being made now, but it's also you know, great also for attracting students to the university and letting them know what we do and all kinds of things. So it's really, really important to have um, this record of these great achievements from all these people and this collaboration.
3: Yeah, I think with the composition side of things, you know, so often uh, composers, especially young composers, they write music, they put together their friends, and then, you know, maybe the performance is okay. Maybe it's, you know, there's not enough rehearsal time, blah, blah, blah. There's something about getting a recording, especially a recording, let alone a performance of your music by professional musicians, professionally edited, professionally mixed. The amount of learning that comes out of that, Mm -hmm. because you can't blame anything anymore that you don't like in the music, Mm -hmm. but the music. And so it's like, oh, this... Thing I did, Man, maybe I'll do it different next time. But until you know that the, everything that you wrote is being taken care of and it's mixed and mastered and all that kind of stuff, it is so important to get that. And plus, they're going to use these these recordings to get commissions and gonna get true, yeah. get work out of it. You know, And people are going to hear their work mm-hmm. and they're going to want to commission them to do another piece. That's the, the way the whole business works. It's like, yeah. oh, I heard this piece of yours; It was great. Would you write me another one? You know?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, we've started to ask every one of our um interviewees this question so what advice do you have for students or faculty at mqn it can be about your um expertise or just teaching advice or any advice for the students or anyone here any listener
2: i can go first if excellent you Please it's, a, do. it's a it's a, a great question and it's uh I think my advice to students is take advantage of all the opportunities you have right now. That's something unique about being in a university surrounded by your peers who are like amazing people who are also interested in the same types of things as you and also your faculty who can teach you a lot. And so just grab every opportunity you have. Take advantage. Um, I also tell a lot of my my students that the people they're surrounded by right now, their peers, may end up being the people they're working with 20 years from now. I'm always amazed at how many people I met when I was in, in doing my undergrad and graduate studies that I'm now actually working with often. And so just be conscious of that and know that you're forming relationships and uh, connections right now that will carry on throughout your life. So take advantage of all that and enjoy it. Like, have a great time. Just do as much of what you love and have a great time. Because once you get out of school, it's not really like this again. So, <laughs> yeah. um, and then I guess for faculty, I guess I would just say, like, uh, um, you know, if you can involve your students in as many of your research projects as possible, I think that's really important and a great thing to do. And it's a rewarding for everybody.
3: Yeah, I'll add to the student thing, Boerig base basically got most of what I wanted to say. I think I think the take advantage of the people, the students around you, is really, really important. Um, one of my closest collaborators is a trumpet player named Jens Lindemann, who teaches at UCLA and was in the Canadian Brass and is a world-renowned uh, trumpet player. We met in high school, <laughs> in McNally High School in Edmonton. and. Um, because of him and us and our collaborations, I mean, we went to Carnegie Hall together to, to hear my music played. I'd been to Russia twice to hear my music played because he went to Russia and played my music and they liked it and wanted to play more of my music. So definitely that's, that's really, really important. And I always say to students, because I was telling the story about you know how students often come in and all they want to do is the thing that they want to do. But it turns out you take this other class and you're like, oh, wow, I never really thought about this. I might be really interested in this. And back when I was teaching full-time and I would teach first-year theory, I'd get a lot of people interested in composition who never thought they were interested in composition because I was really into theory and I would, I'd make it fun and I'd make composing fun and, and all of that kind of stuff. So don't be afraid to take classes in areas that aren't what you think you're here for. Mm-hmm. And especially even outside of, if, if you're in music, outside of music, like the the electives and the options that you take, because you just never know, and you just mm-hmm. also never know who you're going to meet. And then for faculty, that's a really good one. I think for faculty, I would be... hmm, I think faculty, I would say, take advantage of this privileged position that you have to... Do the thing that you love to do. And musicians especially are, are kind of notoriously bad at saying no to anything. You know what I mean? Like never they never say no. They take too much on. But when you get one of these fortunate tenure track positions, you can actually say no to a lot of things because you've got this base salary and it's a good salary. and And you can actually say this thing I've always wanted to do, even if it doesn't make money. This thing I wanted to do, I really wanted to research, I really wanted to write this, I really wanted to go here and do this or study this. You now have that ability to do that. So don't fill your life up with just gigs, so to speak, and really focus on it. what it is you really love to do, what it is you love to do way back when you got into university in the first place, and carve out that time to do that creative research or whatever the research is that you want to
4: do. What do I say to students? Um, a lot of students will ask me. Well, because I've taught here for just over forty years, forty-one years, and a lot of students will come to me and say, "So, how do you? How have you made it? How have you made it in the business?" At which point I say, "Well, I'm not certain I have yet, but I'm, <laughs> I'm working on it. It's still a work in progress." But my my advice to them, in response, is, "Don't give up." Uh, and I think that all, all too often students uh, change uh, change direction too quickly. You know we live in a channel changing world, right? Okay, we you know we'll spend twenty minutes on a show, twenty two minutes on a show. And we click the channel we're on to the next thing, and I think we sort of get into that habit uh, as as students. Okay, well, I'll, I'll try something else um, or I, whatever. And and the music business is is not a straight line in any way. Nothing is actually, to be quite honest. So you know, you have to be prepared that that it's going to move around and it takes time to establish yourself in a career and and it takes networking and it takes commitment and it takes longevity in the industry to make that work. So my my advice to them is take every opportunity you can. Um, There was a person that we know well, um, one of our mentors, Tommy Banks, And he always said, take the gig and figure it out when you get there. (laughs) Well, I'm a little bit nervous about that at times. But the point being is, like, take every opportunity you can as a learning opportunity. And I think if students do that and and if they stick it out, and, and, you know, it's like all of us as teachers, man, I was not, my first couple of years of teaching were not good. You know, I I I'm the first to admit it like my the first <laughs> decade was not <laughs> particularly good. I'm but, still not Yeah, and, <laughs> and there are things I still kind of kind of go, Meh. but you know, you learn over a period of time and you don't give up. What you do is you keep pushing yourself forward. So that's my advice to students is just hang in there, be patient. Okay, be patient and take every opportunity. To faculty, and and I guess what I've seen in this after spending a couple of years in the office of research is that we are, we are, are missing some of the opportunities for collaboration. Um, and, and what I've, what I realized is across our university, we have people who could collaborate in so many ways across faculties and across disciplines. And I would say to faculty is like, you have such an enormous resource within the academy. You know, you have people who have expertise in in the arts industry, uh, composition, recording, whatever that is. You have people in the business community that are in the business department that I have like ultimate, uh, utmost respect for because they understand things I do not. And the same thing goes in the arts and sciences and, and every area. And I think what we need to do is we need to take advantage of what what we have and who we are within there to work on pushing pushing the envelope for, open a little bit and, and seeing what are the possibilities and drawing upon each other's experiences. To me, that's a really important thing right now.
0: Yeah, I would agree. Um, I feel inspired.
1: <laughs> that was great advice. You me guys. too. <laughs>
0: yeah, that was beautiful. Um, thank you for being here today. Um, thank you for taking your time. I know you guys are very busy this time of year and always.
4: Thank, Thank you. you guys for yeah, doing yeah, this. I've you guys enjoyed this. Doing a great Thank job. you so much. <laughs> Thank yeah. you very much. Yeah. It's, it's a pleasure. Been great. It's
2: been great.
0: Well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you want to support this podcast, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Also, don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave us a like, give us a follow, or send us a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast, brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications at McKeown University. Funding for the podcast is partially provided by the Government of Canada through the Research Support Fund. Research for Casted is hosted and produced by Brooklyn Logician and Natalie Smatis. Music, sound design, and editing is by Natalie Smatis. Research, copy editing and scripting is by Brooklyn Logician, and our executive producer is Hugh McKenzie.